This is new. I saw like a centipede go by. The first bug that you must probably saw me like get up and crush against the wall was an enormous uh, like centipede or millipede or I don't know. And then a couple earwigs were walking around on the floor around me. Ugh. I don't. I I had never. I lived in. I've lived in three boroughs of New York, and I had never seen a cockroach in my entire life. <laughs> At least I'm dealing with it with strength and grace, right? <laughs> uh. October already. We're jumping back into October horror. I don't know why, but we're doing it again. (laughs) And this year, we're going to try something a little different. Welcome to Split Picks. This year, we're talking about some of the horror greats. Because normally we do lesser known stuff. We're going to talk about some of the big guys. So today, we're starting with the one that we felt was best to start with, and that's Mr. Toby Hooper. <laughs> I'm being joined today by the creaking door, uh, Mr. Bennett Glace. Bennett, how are you today? Uh, not too bad. It's uh, it's an appropriately uh, spooky, creepy atmosphere. Uh, my apartment is full of bugs. I'm like watching bugs uh, crawl along the wall behind me uh, as we're recording here. So um, I'm very much in the holiday spirit. That's a good welcome to a new place, right? Oh, very much. Yeah, it's 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 like coming into a haunted house. It's great. Yeah, perfect. And we're also being joined by one of the hosts of Synesthesia, Mr. Jim Hickox. Jim, how are you? I'm good. I'm uh, I'm planning on giving children Play-Doh this year instead of candy. I don't know if that's mean or fun. I think it's good. I I can think of way worse things. Because <laughs> yeah. it's you can play with it, but you can also it's like a savory candy. It's like a <laughs> soft taffy with a salty flavor. I was flavor. just about to say, as someone who used to eat Play-Doh all the friggin' time, uh, hey, <laughs> you could do a lot worse than Play-Doh. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. Technically edible. Yeah. All right. Well, today we're going to dive into two of Toby Hooper's movies, and they're, you know, I feel like outside of Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Poltergeist, he, he kind of flies under the radar because most people know those two movies and then maybe a few others, so... Why don't we just start out with both of you saying what movie you picked and why you picked it? Uh, I chose Life Force. Life Force has for years been my answer to the question when people ask me what my favorite film is, just broadly, um, which I, I don't know that it is actually my favorite film, but it is my favorite sort of coalition of elements of a film. Um, it has Toby Hooper. It has Golan Globus era canon. Uh, it has Dan O'Bannon. It's got uh, a million things that we'll talk about that are sort of elements of the film. Um, and it's just sort of like a it's it's sort of a non- nonstop banger, I think. Um, so I, that, that's that's why I picked it. It's also I think it's biggest. Sorry, I'm stepping on you, Bennett. But I think it's his biggest budget film. So in terms of like examining the range of Hooper, uh, it feels like one of the extremes kind of no matter what the other extreme you're examining is Mm -hmm. yeah very much so well bennett what's your extreme what uh what's the other direction we're going and i picked uh spontaneous combustion which is a movie he made kind of after bottoming out with the the trio of golan and globus films this is a uh 
another decent budget for him. Apparently, it's around like five and a half million, and uh, it it uh, it earned a great cume of about fifty thousand uh, apparently. But uh, I, I picked this film because it, uh, it much like uh, like Jim, you said that Life Force is maybe not your favorite film, but your favorite coalition of of elements. I think what makes Toby Hooper's film so great is that uh, whether or not they cohere as uh, effective stories or, uh, you know, are, are at all coherent in any way, they're oftentimes such wonderful coalitions of elements and spontaneous combustion is definitely that. It's got goop, it's got explosions, and it's got a fantastic lead performance from Brad Dourif, who I think is definitely the best horror actor ever and might be one of the greatest American actors, honestly. Definitely high in the rankings, right? He's got to be, top I don't know, yeah. top, I was going to say six. <laughs> he's, uh, you know, he's most famous probably for doing a Jack Nicholson impression in Child's Play. And I would definitely rank him higher than Jack Nicholson on the list of actors. <laughs> on the and Jack, I rank Jack Nicholson highly. Yeah, yeah and yeah, I'm a yeah. fan. <laughs> of the Jack Nicholsons, he's probably. Oh, no, favorite. I mean, I'd rank him higher than Jack Nicholson on actors, period. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, which I guess means he's a better Jack Nicholson than Jack Nicholson. I, I would know. rank Christian Slater lower than Jack Nicholson on the list of Jack Nicholsons. Oh, 100 percent. Stephen Dorff as well. Do you remember first time you saw one of Toby Hooper's films? I think I can probably place the year. It would have been 07. Um, I was into the the Saw movies at that point. I think I'd recently watched Saw two at a uh, at a sleepover, and I Saw three was playing in theaters. And I, this was kind of in the Wild West days of YouTube when it was not that it's that hard to post like full movies now, but back sure. then like really high profile stuff could be up there for a long time. Like I remember I first watched The Departed on YouTube, and it was up there for months. But I remember watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre on YouTube. I remember trying to talk to people about Texas Chainsaw Massacre and them being like off put that I had seen that I'd watched it. And you know what? I saw the remake beforehand. So I was, you know, I was Whoa. aware of Toby Hooper by like osmosis. But my first encounter would have been 07. I probably had seen the remake several times before that. I probably first saw that in 04. But cliched as it is, I, I first encountered him uh, through his breakout film. I... I have, mine is sort of two-pronged. I didn't watch horror growing up. I was an easily spooked young child, uh, as in, into young man. Um, but I did, uh, I listened to pretty gnarly music. And there was uh, a show I used to listen to on my local college radio station called Return to the Pit. And I think the first time, my first actual encounter with any Toby Hooper was, there was a uh, a song by a, this band called Mortician. That's like a, you know, like grindcore band with a drum machine, I think. Uh, that sampled the opening of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I had never seen it. I didn't know anything about it. And they sort of play the, the I think it's John Larkat, right? In, intro where he's sort of per- portraying it as a real thing that happened and giving you the gist of it. And I thought it was real. I thought it was just a real story that they had pulled a clip from and stuck on the song. So that was the first thing was I heard that and I was genuinely terrified about it for about two nights. <laughs> um, but I think the first time I saw one of his films was then... I remember learning when I was, I must have been 17, and I learned that the um, the kind of stress that you get when you watch horror movies or like ride on roller coasters is good for your immune system. And I was sick one time, and I was like, I'm going to start diving into horror movies. I had never really done wow. it. And, and I watched The Exorcist <laughs> and Poltergeist. Uh, <laughs> wow. That's yeah, amazing. It was as an attempt to get well from being sick. And I was like, oh, these movies are great. <laughs> what am i missing out on (laughs) yeah i was i was so uh enthusiastically cured that i never got sick again 
Jim, you're a filmmaker in Austin. How is Toby yes. Hooper kind of received these days in Austin and just as a filmmaker as a whole down there? He's When they did the eggshells restoration, people were like, he's one of us. But that's really, for the most part, nobody really... The, the only dude that you really hear about in Austin is Richard Linklater. Uh, everyone's really excited about him. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but even there's also I mean, Robert Rodriguez makes all his movies here, too. But nobody's like, ooh, he's one of us. It's it's really just Linklater and then really small, like the Zellner brothers. It's like really small time dudes. Um, the, the only person that they claim, really, the, the town claims is uh, is is Ricky Links. That's what he likes to be called. <laughs> so, Jim, you mentioned that Life Force was Toby Hooper's biggest budget movie, and it had a twenty five million dollar budget. How did we get here with Toby Hooper? Well, right, because it's interesting, right? Because he comes from, he starts off as a documentary guy doing like sort of small, small timey documentaries and then, and then gets the, he has a TV movie that's Peter, Paul and Mary. That's, you know, it's very political I, in the way that Peter, Paul and Mary are very political. Um, and then, and then he starts making his own weirdo little movies, right? He makes eggshells, which only sort of became available to watch four or five years ago, I think. And it's super weird. And then and then goes into Texas Chainsaw, which is the most famous, right? And 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 the next couple of movies after that are working very low budget, very sort of documentary style. Um, he he sort of like keeps that that rawness, which I think is a big part of what people like about Texas Chainsaw, right? Is that they react to the it feels g- grimy and real in a way because he's coming from the super low budget, super scrappy, very documentary style background. And then he catches the eye of Steven Spielberg, who gives him Poltergeist, right? Which is what, like ten billion, ten million dollars, um, yeah. which is, and it's his first. It's, I think, I think one of the things that's that's delightful about Life Force is it's sort of we, when we talk about sort of the structure of a film, right? We look at thesis and antithesis, synthesis, right? And this is sort of that. It's like the he has this thesis that is like uh, all the movies previous to Poltergeist that are this like super gritty. Uh, very, very down to earth style, and then Poltergeist is clearly it's like he's he's entering the Steven Spielberg universe. You know, he's like suddenly he's getting access to to super high budget effects and and rotating rooms and millions of dollars. Uh, and then Life Force is him being unleashed by Golden Golan Globus to sort of take that huge budget and take this this new world of like super fancy effects and stuff um but just make a toby hooper movie the answer to your question right is that is that he sort of got jumped up to poltergeist and then golan globus were were kind of nuts right that they their whole legacy is just throwing huge amounts of money uh in directions that people wouldn't have necessarily expected or that weren't necessarily the best uh places to throw money if you want to make money right um, so they, they were like, oh, we're going to take this poltergeist guy and we got the, the right to this space vampire book, uh, and we're going to make it into a giant space movie and it's going to be, you know, space movies are big right now and it's, it's going to be a big moneymaker. Um, and then they, it seems like generally let their directors have pretty free reign. So it's, you know, he, he is working with people he wants to work with and is sort of making the movie he wants to make, but has their scale of budget. There's also, I think I read somewhere that they kept, they, they kept sort of running out and being like, we want more. So I imagine the budget was originally, you know, closer to 20 or something. Um, but they, but they had to sort of keep pushing it to, uh, to, 
to finish the movie. I think he went five weeks over schedule, so I, yeah. Yeah, I imagine they did keep having to you know, keep it going. But <laughs> I, uh, I think even when he's in a world like the sort of Spielberg world of big budget effects, though, I think you can see that he's so his own guy, which is why I find it yeah. so galling that like everybody, when, when they talk about Poltergeist, it's always that like, oh, Steven Spielberg actually directed it because like, I don't know, even if that is true, there's such a grimness. There's such a like, like I don't know, like stuff like the, the, the picking his face apart in the mirror oh, yeah. or like the, the actual like bones apparently that they use at the end uh, even the clown scene which I, I remember putting that movie off for so long because it was so just the very idea was so horrifying to me uh, I, I don't know like Hooper from the very beginning has such a distinct I described it in the notes for the film as like a pungency to his films um, I think it says a lot that Texas Chainsaw Massacre his breakthrough is like the fifth sweatiest movie in his oh oeuvre. yeah I, both Absolutely. of the movies we're talking about today are exceedingly Way sweaty. balmy <laughs> very very sweaty and both probably sweatier than Texas Chainsaw Massacre spontaneous yeah. combustion is probably smellier it's the sweatiest uh, it's probably the sweatiest of that might I there are one or two I haven't seen, but it's definitely up there, and it's got to be top three sweatiest. I I didn't mean to say that when he's doing Poltergeist, he's doing like a, a Steven Spielberg thing, right? I just mean he's like being introduced to those techniques and that sort of alternate filmmaking style. But it is there's none of these movies, and I think you sort of said this in the intro that the thing that is sort of definitionally great about Toby Hooper is that he has these he's like creating beautiful moments and incredible elements, and he has such a like offbeat sense of pacing and he's constantly interested in like keeping you on your on your feet and sort of keeping you a little confused um and he's he, his like love of like colors and of and of uh yeah and like rhythm it's is there in all of his movies and he and he pushes everything to a gnarly degree the i didn't know about the the thing where people say spielberg directed uh poltergeist until like a month or two ago jason told me that and i and i was like that's crazy and then i rewatched poltergeist and i was like how would anyone it it's it has nothing in common with i mean it has like a slickness sort of that spielberg has but it has it doesn't it's so insane you would have to believe that spielberg was like completely out of his mind making that movie but it's so in keeping with a Toby Hooper film. It's it's every choice that's being made. You're like, this is a very Toby Hooper choice. And I don't understand how anyone could have gotten to the point where they would think that. It's so crazy. Right. And then whether he's working in like TV movies or on tiny budgets, direct to DVD. Yeah. I don't know. There's such a distinct quality. I don't know. I feel like it's really only on like film Twitter and Letterboxd that anybody bothers talking about him as like an auteur. I can think of like five people who really like go to bat for him. Like, you know, seriously and, and talk about all of the films, but I don't know. Like, uh, They can't be all this consistently good and yeah. the director be no good, you know? I do think uh, from watching, so sort of watching a span getting ready for this, I hadn't watched anything sort of post, I don't know, 90s, I think. Um, and so I watched, a, I watched like Toolbox Murders and Mortuary, um, which are obviously they're being made at at a different time and and in a different way, right? He he was desirable at one point and then he was undesirable, uh, and then this is he was an you know like sort of just an older guy that like people were like ah maybe Toby Hooper's name will get us some money, right? They're like very low budget sort of mid two thousands movies, and when I was watching them, I was like I think what is one of the things that sort of ties all these films together is that I don't think Toby Hooper is a writer, right? He like he has writing credits on a couple of his early films, but it's, he's like working with Kim Henkel early on and then like, you know, Life Force is Dan O'Bannon. And then like, you know, uh, most of the movies are like they feel very the script feels very of whoever wrote it. 
Um, and then things like mortuary and toolbox murders. I, if you look at just those on like a on like a the things that are being said level, you're like, there's there's some juice to this, right? Both of those movies, there's like something going on that is that makes them better than just a script of like any mid two thousands horror movie. Um, but neither of the they they both could use another pass. I was like, I could do a rewrite on either of these films and make them funnier and scarier and better. Uh, and I'm a middling writer. And but I but I don't think Toby Hooper. I think he's like, this is the script I'm working with, and I'm a hundred percent committing to this script, and then I'm gonna add my Hooper on top of it. I'm gonna I'm gonna hoop out on top of this script. And he he just like throws everything he has at the document that he has. And I think he which is, you know, a style that I think people don't respect as much when they're talking about autourism. They're like, oh no, this person has to have their fingers in every single pot, right? But I don't it, I get the feeling that he is just directing the shit out of the document that he has. I think those are both perfect examples of him putting like Hooperisms on not so yeah. great material and directing the shit yeah. out of stuff. I, but those are both, I don't know, like tertiary movies in, in of course, his career. Of course. <laughs> and I think they're full of, oh, I would rank them in the top 10 probably. But sure. they're still, they have more indelible images than I could think of oh, in literally yeah. any Wes Craven, Romero, Carpenter film. Yes. And I love all three and many yeah. films from all three. But there's nothing in any of their filmography that like turns my stomach like when you're looking down the drain in Mortuary and those like fuzzy like tendrils are coming out. Oh, Yeah, it's horrifying. Or that black soup she's feeding them. Like only Toby Hooper could come up with stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. It's like truly gut-wrenching. One of the things I love about Toby Hooper is in interviews, his answers are so simple and basic, but he conveys yeah. everything perfectly like... In Eaten Alive, my, my brother and I watched a few weeks ago, and we watched the director's intro expecting him to be like a few minutes long, but he literally just says like, hi, I'm Toby Hooper. I directed this film. I hope you enjoy the colors. And then the movie starts, and we were just like, that is the greatest intro ever. <laughs> but, you know, taking all of his early films into effect, once he gets to Life Force, like, I was blown away by the first scenes because, like, it's just purple and big and yeah. huge and... How do you feel these the colors in the scene a allowed him to do you know a grander thing with a big budget, but also like harken back to his past? Uh, Toby Hooper is sort of on record as saying that he he came at this as a seventy millimeter hammer movie, right? Which is uh, it's it's the appropriate response when when Golan and Globus come to you and they're like, we want you to make a movie based on this book called Space Vampires, right? You're like, this is sort of the current thing that is closest to hammer and they're asking me to make space pulp um and they're giving me 25 million dollars so so that's you know it makes sense that that's how he approached it uh and and so i think you know the the like colorful yeah his space is like deep purples and burgundies and like whirls of like blue and then the spaceships are like giant uh uh biological umbrella claws right it's everything is it's very uh, sort of comic booky. It's very sort of pulpy, um, but shot in a very grand sort of two thousand one way, right? Everything's like beautiful and 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 spinning around slowly, and and this glass floats coffins really out. elegantly. Yeah, it's all yeah, it's all it's it it has a slickness to it, right? That um, that things that are that pulpy don't usually have. It's a, it's a really a wonderful marriage, I think. There's a big Henry Mancini score too as they're like yeah. approaching. It really is such a perfect mix of uh, like prestige and camp. I don't know. There's, yeah. there's few films I can think of that marry them so well without seeming contrived. 
I saw that they were like, they, they gave Mancini a, like a 10 minute chunk from the beginning. That's just them sort of getting to space. And they were like, this is what the movie's going to be like. So score the movie. <laughs> and, and he was like, Oh great. Right. He must've been like, this is going to be my 2001. And then they must've given them the, him the rest of score. And he was like, what am I, what am I doing here? Oh, what have I done? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Cause it, it does, it starts off with this like beautiful, elegant space ballet. Um, I, re- I vividly remember the first time I watched this movie uh, because it, it starts off with this like level of spectacle that at that point I had I had seen a few Toby Hooper movies, but none of them feel like that there, there's they it feels huge. Right. It feels like it has a huge budget, um, which is for 25 million in the mid 80s is like a big budget, but it's nothing sort of compared to what we currently throw at big movies. Right. Um, but it feels a lot bigger than a lot of movies that have a lot more money, which I think is, uh, you know, to Toby Hooper's credit. But it does. It feels it feels giant. And you sort of you sort of end up in this beautiful yeah, like floating space thing. And then and then you go inside this giant uh, alive spaceship and it's full of these giant dead bats. Um and just the the way the, the way his characters exist in the space, they're all sort of nonplussed, uh, but like a little freaked out. But they're like, I don't know, they're like, ah, there's creatures in here, but they're not like they're mammal. I don't know. There's a lot going on. Uh, and and sort of the way it all flows is is really lovely. I I love the like uh, Star Trek ass like voiceover we get about their mission too. Oh yeah, it's, it's John right Larroquette comes in and it's like, who also I think does the intro in Texas Chainsaw, doesn't he? Larroquette. Oh, Am I, I wrong so. about that? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Which, what a fun pairing. <laughs> yeah, he t- yeah he like tells us some facts about about this mission that that like the ship is the first ship that's been able to accelerate constantly as it goes into space to simulate gravity, which is great. Um. They would be going so fast. <laughs> it also makes it so uh, like that adds like it, it becomes so disorienting once they get off the ship and we're unmoored yes. from gravity too. The the like the whirling camera is used to such great effect in this. Uh, the first time when he's like hypnotized by Matilda May's character and that motif comes back. It like yeah. takes us back in time. It it comes back repeatedly and then like even when the camera's not doing it, you sort of start to feel like the camera's doing it. <laughs> it's like once we've once we've left that like Earth like gravity, we don't get back. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's nice because they use it as I, you just said this right, but it's 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 literalized, right? They're like we're whirling around in space now because there's no gravity, but it's also being used in ways where you would like rotate a camera to like represent something weird happening, right? It's like he's super disoriented and falling in love with this strange space woman in a coffin, um, and but but also we're like no, we're just floating around in space. Uh, yeah, and everyone else comes in at weird angles, and it would be like too heavy handed or too obvious if it wasn't so good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, that's what's so cool is that in that scene, like, we're not sure if he's really spinning or if it's just in his head. And then they're both oriented differently in the frame than when they first got in. It's so, oh, it, it, yeah, it, it puts you, like, in that, in zero gravity. You you don't know where you are. One of the things we, we sort of have touched on a couple times, and I'm sure we'll keep talking about, is that this, like, special Toby Hooper juice is is in a lot of ways, it's like a, he, like, leans into sort of grotesqueries. He leans into these, like, big motions um but but a lot of them play off in really elegant ways and this is a specific example right but i think there are a lot of them across all of his films where he's doing something that's like a very a very large bold motion but he's doing it in a way that sort of it just glides gently into the movie and just makes you feel a way um 
even though it's sort of like a it's you know putting having a guy show up in screen sort of at a funny angle and then pulling out and showing other people poking into the frame at other angles is a funny joke right but the way he does it is very slick and it feels it just it feels it feels like a like a natural motion that is that is good storytelling in addition to being sort of a dumb joke uh which i think is i don't know i think a lot of people have a trouble marrying those two vibes you know yeah he, he can marry uh goofiness and elegance and also like i think that just the most famous example of how he can mix um grotesquerie or like madness and elegance would be just like the ending of texas chainsaw massacre you know the, the, sure. the ballet with the chainsaw he, he yeah he can make both really really yeah like goofy and kind of like offbeat stuff really really elegant and beautiful and engaging and he can make just horrifying stuff really sort of elegant and unusual like there's kind yeah. of a uh, there's a weird beauty to like the leather face mask you know yeah absolutely with or without makeup on <laughs> yeah <laughs> so before we get too far into this can we just get like the one minute what's going on in this movie just if people haven't seen it so it's not like wait space girl, sure what <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's it's hard to boil down because one of the big joys of of this film uh, is that it is it's constantly sort of shifting under your feet right. right it starts off as space movie we have astronauts finding a spaceship tailing Halley's comet and it's it's got creatures in it and then we're on we're on earth and those astronauts uh oh no the, their ship crash crashes and it's there's nobody in it uh except for these these alien beings uh and then the alien beings are uh, the the formerly titular space vampires right it was it's based on a book called space vampires um and they were gonna call that i've read somewhere toby hooper was like i wanted to call it space vampires because it felt more hammer but i'm space vampires is a terrible title even just just subjectively it's a bad name for a book or a movie i wish they hadn't spoiled that it was called space vampires in the opening credits because yeah, yeah like you said this movie becomes a hundred different movies in one you think it's going to be kind of a riff on alien because they yes. find this like floating ship that you're like oh don't don't investigate that they go in <laughs> and there's this there's weird stuff there's floating bats there's these three naked people in these like glass coffins they get hypnotized by this that she's only credited as space girl uh matilda <laughs> may's character and then basically like uh, everybody dies, uh, but they, they, they get the, the vampires, they bring them back, and it immediately becomes, again, a hundred different movies in one. It becomes like a yeah. possession movie. It becomes like a werewolf movie. It becomes uh, a zombie movie uh, closer to the end. There's exorcisms. Yeah. Like a large-scale disaster film. Oh, it's crazy. Uh, I love to... Uh, I didn't think they were going to show you... Um, like London on fire when he mentions that on the radio, I thought it was going to be like a bit that they were like, that you hear him talking yeah. about it, but you don't see it. And then you see it and it's great. Cause it looks, it looks both so like massive and so low budget at the same time. It's like such a throwback, yes. like a miniature <laughs> on fire like that. But um, basically once they get back to earth, Matilda May starts to like hypnotize and possess everybody. Um, it's also kind of, it must've been an inspiration for under the skin. I know the movie is technically based on a oh, book yeah. and I wonder if even the book must've inspired this. Cause she starts to sort of go around like the English countryside, like <laughs> seducing and possessing people like old, men Which, it's kind of like the same premise <laughs> yeah. right well yeah it's, yeah so one there's the three there's three alive space vampires right and two of them are men and one of them's a woman and the men die immediately uh they're all like beautiful and nude uh, and the two men are killed off immediately uh when they arrive on earth more or less uh and that so then it's just this beautiful nude woman who walks around uh and everyone who sees her falls in love with her uh and then she steals some of their life force right and th that's that's the like plot um, and then and then it's about this the one guy who survived the space trip uh, partnering up with a guy from the British military and trying to chase her down uh, and, and kill her. But at the same time, 
everyone that she's taking life force from is becoming another monster and they're all stealing other people's life force and then and then the whole all of london is descending into chaos i think that's the plot you got it (laughs) yeah uh but basically the one guy who survived the vampire attack is also he's conflicted in his mission because he knows he has to kill her but he's also like in love with her i one of the things I, I the movie is so obviously like suffused with like sex and it's about yeah. sexual obsession and uh, the you know one of the primary characters is naked the whole time but I thought it was really interesting how indirectly sex itself seems to be discussed yeah and um, h- how much they they articulate how they feel about the Matilda May character in terms of like love and longing rather than lust like I think like yeah. be with me they're like I I wanted day. her I wanted to be with her I I yeah they're, it's all very uh like PG. <laughs> The way it's, they talk it's about it, weirdly chased for a movie with yeah. so much, yeah, so much, uh, so much full frontal nudity. Even though, yeah, they she's she's nude for the first twenty five minutes, and then they're like, "Oh, she's gotten away, and she killed a woman, and now she has clothes." That's a line. They're like, "Now she has clothes," <laughs> uh, and then the next time we see her, she's in another woman's body, uh, who is clothed, and then the next time we see her after that, she's in the sheerest bathrobe, uh, which she takes off immediately, and then she's nude again for the rest of the film. They. Give her, they give her one scene to wear like a like a a, a light um, curtain, <laughs> and there's there's no full frontal from the two men. It's uh, no, it's very much they in put a metal with, bar. Uh, yeah, always like conveniently obscured by shadow. It's it's in keeping yeah. with with Hollywood's historic cowardice regarding the nude male form. Right, uh, Craig, you mentioned it. it's been a while since I've seen Night Terrors, but you're right. Night Terrors does feel <laughs> gratuitous nude. Does feature uh, a gratuitous nudity of 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 every sort. Yeah, and it but, comes uh, out of nowhere I know, too. <laughs> I don't know why they didn't. I don't know why they didn't just go full uh, pedal to the metal here. Yeah, because um, you're already hard on everything. Yeah, yeah. It's almost more distracting that they don't, because it's like, oh, it's yeah. gonna line up. It did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like those Austin Powers scenes, right, where he's like carrying exactly. a gourd in front and of his penis. <laughs> I, I honestly, yeah, I feel like if you're gonna have any sort of suggestion of nudity, you've got to go balls to the wall. Uh, no yeah. pun intended. Balls because, to the screen. Yeah. Because since Austin Powers, everything looks like that. Everything yes. just calls to mind that. That ruined suggestive nudity, I think, forever in cinema. Frankly. Yeah. Yeah. Just be nude or don't. Also, the other thing I think this film is missing that it probably could have had, considering it has everything else, is the uh, the, the astronaut who survives. Uh, I can't remember what's his name, like Collingwood or Carlisle. Colonel something. I don't know. Everyone is Colonel something, <laughs> and they're all similar. It's like Colonel Cunningham, Colonel Cra- Crabtree. I've realized in trying to watch these how little I watch movies for plot. And I think it's another reason oh, yeah. I watch. I, I like Toby Hooper more than these other directors is because like his stories tend to cohere the least, and they're just the most <laughs> fun for the, the imageries and the wild elements. But yeah. the, the surviving astronaut crash lands in Texas, yeah. and then it, there's a smash cut to them like driving to his pod. No needle drop. No no classic rock song playing. They no, like thirteen like, floor elevators or something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it would have been so great. It, it is nice it is it's like a nice fun i don't know for me the first time i watched it again it was like a nice fun they're like it landed where did it land big dramatic pause texas right and you're like yay it's a, i don't know if you guys are familiar with like uh with wrestling chants but I, I was like toby hooper you know it's like I, you get excited about it it feels like a big i uh or just a big texas title card or something we were missing something there it's definitely a it's definitely a fist pump line you know, you've yeah, heard of yeah. laugh lines. This is a fist pump line for sure. Yeah, exactly. It's it's where you throw your cup of soda at the screen, but like you enjoy, right? Not in anger. Uh, you're so excited about it. Yeah, the I, I do want to loop back to your your point about the sex thing for a second, just for one second, because there is I I agree with you for all of the movie, but there's one scene that I find disconcerting 
where the the main guy is he's like a little bit he he's absorbed a little bit of the space vampire's uh powers so he's a little psychic for the whole movie and there's one scene where they interrogate a woman and he uh partway through the scene is like this woman is a masochist she wants me to beat this information out of her uh you can leave if you want and the other colonel is like no i'm a voyeur and sits and watches as he presumably beats her up for information, but in what seems like a sort of sexual way, that one scene uh, always stands out to me as it's it's like remarkably unchaste, but also feels, I don't know, politically dubious. Yeah, no, that, that uh, it's it stuck out. And I've seen a lot of people like noted on their letterbox reviews is like, what is, uh, <laughs> what, is what is Hooper like saying here about these guys? Yeah, no, that is yeah. that is one moment that sticks out. They, I guess they talk about it in indirect ways, but they do seem to be like constantly referring to sex. There's that line yeah. like you'd probably rather be uh, you'd probably rather be recuperating with a with a pretty nurse or something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's they're always finding ways to like dance around it. I don't know, like, are, but it's are, like are, how I don't know. It's how like people joke. It's like very jokey. It's jocular the, the way they talk about it. It's like not. It's not sexy. <laughs> yeah, it's either that or it's this like indirect like can't bear to talk about it. Because the one that sticks out for me is when he has the dream and he says something like, um, uh, God, like she approached me or uh, yeah. she possessed me or something like that. And they go like, how? And he obviously means like, did you fuck? And he yeah. goes, in my mind. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I don't, I don't think that's what he meant. <laughs> yeah. You're like, no, no, no. They want details. <laughs> and even the fact that the life force draining uh, procedure, if we want to call it that, is, is, is like a Frenching. out. Yeah. yeah. It is kind of chaste for like what we're yeah. meant to understand is going on. Absolutely. Well, and it's also, it feels, I mean, it's like the vampire thing, right? It's like vampires are very sexual monsters. Like their whole thing is about sex. Although actually, now that I'm like uh, going down that path, other vampire movies are also sort of similarly chaste, right? There's a lot of like suggestive talking and then like neck biting and then like somebody behind a willowy veil. Maybe that's what they're riffing on is is this sort of idea that vampires in films at least are historically I've never read a book, uh, but in in films at least, they're historically very like everything's very like, ooh, I'm so attracted to him and he's like so beautiful and then and then he just like bites your neck a little bit, you know. Right. They have to be keeping in in keeping with sort of a like a Victorian attitude towards <laughs> yeah. sex in general. Yeah. Which is that it's not real. That, that it doesn't exist. Yeah. Um I, I like too that like the movie starts out as maybe an alien ripoff and then ends up like <laughs> talking about ancient aliens which i've never oh, seen yeah. prometheus but from my understanding prometheus <laughs> is about like ancient aliens it's wild that this movie both rips off alien and then predicts prometheus it <laughs> oh it's true Ridley scott was trying to get one uh, to, to get back at the uh the late toby hooper with we uh, should prometheus. we should watch aliens one through six and see if they're all touched on in this film somehow <laughs> <laughs> i it i i've heard people comparing this to uh the the third um What's that dude? Quartermass movie? The Quartermass in the Pit? Um, which I don't know if you guys are. <laughs> I don't know how hippie out of the Quartermass films. Uh, I've heard them referred to, is, uh, is which, as familiar as I am. <laughs> I, I think are the Hammer films that he would be most specifically referring to when he says that he's sort of making a Hammer movie, right? Is that the Quartermass things were. I think they were all BBC serials that then Hammer bought the rights to and remade into features. Um, but the, I know that I've seen Quartermass in the Pit because uh, one time I f- found a VHS tape of it in in a post office, uh, and I was like, "What's this going to be?" And I took it home and watched it, and I was like, "This is crazy." Um, and that movie is about that idea. It's about um, them like Quartermass. The like character is like a guy who he's he's like pre Doctor Who, uh, like an Earth guy who who deals with space. 
And the the third quartermaster in the pit is about him. They're like doing a dig and they find these things. And it turns out that aliens have been visiting Earth and like influencing uh, how we how we evolved. And then the end of it is similar. It like there's a giant like energy beam shooting up and London is on fire and he has to like drive a crane into the energy beam to like ground it and, and kill the aliens or whatever. But also quartermaster two, the second one uh, is all about he's like sent uh, an exploration to space. Um, and then the ship comes back empty and then uh, and then these um, aliens start taking over. They like have pods with gas in them and people who breathe the gas get possessed by the aliens and the aliens start taking over like the government officials and stuff, which also happens in this film. So it does feel like he's riffing on multiple of the like old quarter mess movies, which is interesting. Um, and uh, and I'm curious how much of that is in. I mean, I'm. I haven't, and I'm not going to uh, read the book, uh, Space Vampires. Um, but I'm curious how... I, I would really be interested in seeing how much this diverges from the book, or hearing about it from someone who's going to bother reading the book. Because uh, I think this is, I think this is another movie where the author was like, I hate it. Well, I did see Toby, Toby Hooper did mention those films specifically as inspiration. So oh, did I? You're on to something there. Um, one thing I do love about this movie though, is there's like the senior doctor who's the one studying like when death actually happens. Yeah. At one point he just like pulls out the vampire book and then later he's like, Hey, I figured it out. (laughs) I, I love how much of like how much of the action we're meant to understand happens off screen, which is kind of why I thought we wouldn't see London on fire. He, correct me if I'm wrong, he stabs the vampire with that big sword completely off screen, right? He just ends up explaining that later on and giving you a ton of exposition. I love that. We cut to a room where the vampire is on like a thing impaled through, and he's like, "Hey, I did a thing. (laughs) I stabbed this guy." guy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, you have to stab them through an energy center an inch below their heart. Because it's not it's not normal vampires. It's space vampires. <laughs> so one quote I do want to put in front of you guys. And critics apparently did not like or <laughs> seem to understand this movie. But one that I thought was hilarious was the New York Times called it hysterical vampire porn. Sure, that's true. You like that? Okay. They say that like it's a yeah. bad thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. right. <laughs> Yeah, is that a bad? I do, I do feel like I saw some excerpts from reviews that were meant to be bad reviews, and every single one of them, I was like, "This is accurate and sounds fun." <laughs> yeah, right. You're, you're perfectly describing why I like this movie. Don't don't threaten me with a good time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's uh, it is it is all those things. Everyone is hysterical. Uh, Matilda May is completely nude for the whole film, and it's uh, they're sort of vampire. Vampire is the least accurate of those words, I think. I think as with like every Toby Hooper film, I, most Toby Hooper films by the title or the end of the opening credits, you sort of know whether you're bought in or not. This sure. one maybe goes a little longer than most because yeah. it has like the seriousness up until they get back down to earth. This yeah. one gives you about like 15 minutes before I think the Hooper skeptics will have like checked out. And I, maybe I that's, that's maybe that's why people found it particularly That's why they're so mad. Because it had, <laughs> it had some of a sheen of like seriousness or at least the sort of like mock seriousness that they were used to. Yeah. Although it's 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 funny. It, this sort of goes back to what I was saying about his like grand grotesque motions having like a, a beauty to them is th- there's a bunch of stuff in that opening sequence where it's like there are a bunch of giant dead bat creatures in that room. And that's super goofy. You know, there's a lot of stuff that's in that opening sequence that on second or third watch, you're like, oh, this is absolutely ridiculous. But it does when you're first watching it, it you're like, oh, this is like a big deal, <laughs> serious space film until it stops doing that. And then. And then it's doing another thing, right? It, it does. It goes through five movies over the course of the 
thing, which is lovely. It also for for a movie that's long as long as it is, nearly two hours, which is usually like the dead zone for me. An hour and fifty minutes, yeah. the worst runtime a movie can be. It yeah. really moves. And you're on to like, yeah. movie two of this movie within like 15 minutes. <laughs> well, I think that's it's it's almost like watching. Uh, I, I agree with you. I think every movie should be either 80 minutes or shorter or at least three hours. Uh, <laughs> that that middle, who cares? Get it off Ugh. my screen. Um, but this almost feels like you're binging five episodes of of a really slick TV show that just flows into each other. Right. It's of like, like constantly... Horror... it's like if they cut yeah. out all the chaff from American Horror Story, because every season of American Horror Story is this movie. Basically, it could Ten be an hour and 50 minutes movies like sewn together. And yes, ultimately, you could take all of the good stuff and make it like a two hour movie. Yeah. And like let stuff happen off screen. We don't have to see everything happen. Toby Hooper knows how it's done. God, the best I, ever do it, at least horror yeah, Absolutely. And I, I, I do think I mentioned at the beginning one of the reasons I, I picked this is because it's a confluence, right? And and one of the things that I think I assume he had a, a, this choice, but I don't know. Uh, one of the things that I think is great about this is choosing Dan O'Bannon to be the writer on it, right? Uh, there, I, think, I think there's a couple of writing credits, but I only give Dan O'Bannon credit in my head because I respect him. Um, but it's, you know, it's, again, it's like you're being offered the chance to adapt this book that, that seems like it's probably a middling book, no offense to the guy who wrote it, uh, the space vampire book, and you're being given a huge budget and you're working with Golan Globus, who you know is going to be like, yes, to whatever you say. Uh, so like you bring on, you bring on Dan O'Bannon, who like has a history of writing not only space movies and not only like science fiction, but also goofy things and weird horror. It's, it's, I think that they're... I think their chakras are aligned, Dan O'Bannon and Toby Hooper, and I wish they'd work together more. I think they just did this in Invaders from Mars, right? Um, I think that's it, yeah. And Invaders from Mars is basically a shot-for-shot remake of the old Invaders from Mars, right? It's like there's very little that they did. I mean, I think they did a lot of stuff, uh, but there's but it, it doesn't stray a lot, right? This is sort of the only movie where they like get together and really while out. Um, but I think that they are tonally similar human beings uh and i think that i think that is a remarkably good choice for for for, as i said i don't think toby hooper is is bothering to change the words when he's on set right i think he's taking what he has and going with it and i think dan o'bannon is a good partner for that relationship (laughs) yeah it it makes me wonder like if he'd had more collaborators like dan o'bannon and like stronger relationships with them and like sustain them over multiple films if uh i don't know if he'd be remembered more fondly because like, oh, yeah. it seems like he was largely a free agent. I mean, we talked a little bit, a bit about the uh, balancing from different like styles of filmmaking and different sort of, uh, I don't know, budget levels and stuff. Uh, had he yeah. had somebody like Dan O'Bannon to sort of, I don't know, work on the scripts for him, would the films be better and would he have gotten more kind of high profile opportunities? I it's think, hard to yes. imagine the films being better. But. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think the, the part that other people care about that we have both, I think, now stated we're not super invested in would be more cohesive, perhaps. Uh, the the story, um, maybe. Although Dan O'Bannon also not super invested in story, obviously, right? Uh, he's more uh, invested in bits, I think. So, Jim, you've mentioned that you've called this on more than one occasion your favorite film. Yes. Winding this portion down, what makes this your favorite film? Because I think a lot of people would hear that and be like, "Who the hell is this guy?" But I well, I understand it. <laughs> it's just. It's just so it's just so full of good juice, you know? It's like a I don't know, it's like um it's like eating a ripe grapefruit. Uh, just everything everything is constantly coming at you. Um and it is I think to some degree it is that I 
when people ask me what my favorite movie is, I want it to be a Toby Hooper movie and I want it to be a Dan O'Bannon. You know what I mean? But but like I can't say it's Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 because that doesn't have all the other elements I want. And I want it to be Dan O'Bannon, but I can't say it's dead and buried because that doesn't have all the other elements I want. And I want it to be a Golan Globus movie, but I'm not going to say it's, you know, the Masters of the Universe film because that doesn't have all the other. It has a it has a bunch, uh, but it doesn't have all the other elements that I want. You know what I mean? And this when when I'm trying to sort of succinctly define the things that are exciting to me about film this movie is i i don't think at any at any given moment i think i could probably name a movie that i would rather watch right but i would never not be excited to watch this film and i think that at any time i could show this film to anyone and be like this is what i like about movies uh this is what brings me joy is this uh and i it's it's sort of a thesis statement for what is good about cinema i think this film no, wow. Perfectly said. Yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah. That kind of wraps it up. <laughs> we're going to take a quick break. Then we're going to hop into spontaneous combustion. We'll be back in just a minute. Yes, but this is not ordinary. Could you take down a message and give it to him before he Look, I'm not responsible for chasing down people for personal calls. Listen, you idiot. I don't think this is as important as your lousy snap. So one of the reasons I was so excited to have you two on specifically for this episode is because, Bennett, you wrote about Texas Chainsaw 2 a while back, and Jim, for Synesthesia's just absolutely insane series, uh, Hell to the King, which uh, (laughs) we're not going to bring back this year, sorry. Um, You guys visited the Mangler, and I mean, obviously you guys have already covered both those already, but... One thing that interests me about Toby Hooper is after Life Force, he kind of had a downhill slide in the public eye, at least. I just want to hear a little bit about your thoughts on both of those films and how they kind of represent Hooper as a whole. Um, well, I think Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, and I wrote about this a little bit in my my piece on it, I think it represents, it makes me like Hooper more than I already did. The fact that he was like given the opportunity, given one of the biggest budgets he'd ever have, an opportunity to revisit the franchise that had made his name, and he just burns it all to the fucking ground, like literally. Um, it's it's such a refreshing entry in a franchise when now fans run everything and, and franchise yeah. filmmaking is, you know, such as it is. It's also, it's so... Life Force that we just talked about was the first of his. He got like a three picture contract with Golan Globus, right? And and then he, then I think it's that, and then Invaders from Mars, and then Chainsaw Two. And I don't know if that was a stipulation where they were like, we want three movies, and one of them has to be the sequel to your most famous, or if he just decided he was gonna do Chainsaw Two and do what he did. But either way, it's it's a really beautiful motion he is i think in your essay it's it's called salting the earth right your essay uh, which salting is, the franchise fields yeah yeah which is exactly what he, he's like he's like this is not only the second and what i would like to be the last movie in this franchise it's also taking everything that's interesting and good about the first one and really just blowing it up uh to an insane degree it's 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 both the most fun and the goriest right it's, it's I, it, it says it all that the film opens with uh, a guy shooting a sign for the Alamo. It says like the yeah. Alamo five miles. So it should, that that's how this movie feels about 
reverence for for yeah. anything for any sort of like an institution my sense is that it was sort of an assignment it was like you're getting yeah. these budgets and you get to make these movies but we have to have Texas Chainsaw too and I don't know what what a perfect way to respond to that assignment you know you're given an assignment right. like that you could make a you can make a Jason Reitman's Ghostbusters or you can make Texas Chainsaw Massacre <laughs> yeah exactly you're like I can either just kind of be like nah fine I'll do the thing or you can be like I'm gonna I'm gonna really put all my my meat into this uh into this assignment and like really really blow it up really have some fun with it so jim what about the mangler there's not a lot i can i don't know if i don't know if people who listen to to, to these things or or pay a lot of attention to split tooth know that we all live in a compound together oh yeah and and (laughs) that we all uh come and work in the same office buildings and and that i halfway through october two years ago made myself a homemade the mangler t-shirt and i wore it every day for the rest of october and everyone was like jim you smell terrible please (laughs) it's all i would talk about anytime we were like eating lunch together in the in the split tooth cafeteria i would just talk about the mangler everyone would be like please get off the mangler but i just couldn't i was stuck on it for two and a half weeks um so i feel like there isn't a ton that i can say about it that i didn't say on probably five episodes of of our uh hell to the king thing um but it is it is also just a it's just an absolutely joyous film um that's that's full of just it's 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 also so i watched it in the middle of watching 30 I don't know, five uh, Stephen King films. And so there's, I saw a lot of people taking Stephen King and and bending it to the screen, right? And and most of them, there are a few exceptions. Most of them were, were very sort of sedate approaches to taking a book and making it into a film. But, but The Mangler is, it's like taking it and really just throwing everything at the screen, right? We have uh, Robert England in like insane makeup, um and uh and uh uh buffalo bill as as like the most bedraggled detective um all the performances are phenomenal it's it's also an incredibly sweaty movie uh even though it doesn't have to be um but it is uh it's i don't know it just does a lot of things right one of the other ones actually Bennett, that sort of leads into uh spontaneous combustion is one of the other ones that that really came out of nowhere for me and and uh, surprised me was uh night shift which also stars brad Dourif. Um, at, who, which who like just rampages across the whole film? Yeah, I, uh, I, I think he's he's had so many great like Hooper's leading men are are, are so unusual and they're great. Yeah. Uh, I love Ted Levine so much. Yeah, uh, there's no one in the history of Hollywood who sounds like Ted Levine. No, and uh, Hooper uses that to great effect. Um, the uh, the only person in Hollywood history who maybe kind of sounds like Ted Levine is Vincent D'Onofrio in Men in Black. <laughs> sort of sounds a little like Ted Levine yeah. as Buffalo Bill. But yeah. um I and that yeah, that brings me I guess to 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 Brad Dorif, who uh is just incredible in spontaneous combustion. It 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 combines every element of what like you like in a Brad Dorif performance. He's like kind of like wounded and sad. He's kind of an <laughs> asshole. He's kind of creepy. This this the, this performance should have been nominated for an Oscar, frankly. Yeah. Brad Dorif in Spontaneous he, Combustion. He's one of those actors who, no matter what you're asking him to do, he swings for the fences. You know, and he's perfect for I, Craig. You I think pointed this out. He's perfect for a Hooper movie. Because like yeah. he can he can clue into the goofiness. He can clue into when it's supposed to be like serious. He can clue into when it's supposed to be sad. Yeah. Not a lot of actors can hit all those beats. Yeah. <laughs> right. Bennett, you want to just give us a little mini teaser about what is going on here? Because uh, just like Life Force, there's a lot going on. Yeah. And and honestly, um, Life Force is a movie 
that like where, where a lot of stuff like happens off screen. Apparently, Spontaneous Combustion is a movie that was really chopped to bits um, in okay. like the editing room. So uh, there's a lot of stuff apparently that we're not seeing. Uh, I think it works in its favor because it's a movie that feels like an ever widening conspiracy and like an ever tightening noose on Brad Dourif's character. <laughs> but basically, in 1955, a, a couple. Uh, agrees to take part in this uh, experiment as part of Operation Samson, where basically they take a bunch of anti-radioactivity vaccines and agree to go into a bunker for a week where a hydrogen bomb is basically going to be detonated above them. And then they spend a week in this uh, underground bunker. And I guess they're trying to see if they can create people who are immune to the potential effects of uh, a nuclear holocaust. And I really like that that's like the defeatist attitude that America has uh, going into like this new age. It's like, well, obviously at one point we're going to end up fucking blowing each other up. And our best bet is to create a class of human that could potentially survive this. It's not like even, it's not even creating a new weapon. It's not even like, let's nope. blow everybody else off the map. It's, it's, you know, let, let's make sure we can survive nuclear fallout. But some of us, some of us, can <laughs> some of us, maybe uh, a year later uh, or, you know, nine months later, they, they end up having a son and uh, he's born on, of course, the, uh, uh, what, 10-year anniversary of uh, the, the dropping of the bomb oh, on yeah. uh, Hiroshima. And uh, minutes after his birth, uh, suddenly his parents spontaneously combust. Uh, cut to, uh, like, 1990. Uh, he's uh, now Brad Dorf. He's grown into Brad Dorf, uh, a, uh, a put-upon man, Drive, a man. Driving a 1955's car. Who drives what looks like, I don't know if you guys are familiar, Jim, you said you've never read a book, but uh, I meant to attach it to the, the Google Docs. I'm pretty sure it's the exact same car from uh, the, the the first edition cover of Revolutionary Road. The, I, I don't know. I, I know nothing about cars, but it's it's a classic. It's just the most 1950s uh, looking car yeah. you could possibly imagine. Folks, conjure that in your mind. But um, <laughs> it's red. yeah, he. I, <laughs> one of the things I like about I think it has like white wall tires too. I don't mm-hmm. know. You, you, oh yeah, folks, picture picture it in your mind. You, you guys can yeah. conjure this. Um, it's got the fins. Uh, I, one of the things I really like about the movie is that like from the very beginning, uh, the world seems to be out to get Brad Dourif. And then as the movie goes on, you realize, oh, everybody is in on this conspiracy against him. Literally, <laughs> they literally I think like, all are. Yeah. <laughs> maybe we don't confirm it with everybody, but it's possible that even like the students we see early oh, yeah. on are in on projects. They're like being paid been, like, to be terrible him. to him. Yeah. Uh-huh. Because everybody fucking hates this guy. His, he's getting a, he's like auditioning for, for some Shakespeare or like, uh, I don't know, like uh, just showing off a scene uh, for, for like students. And they're like, wow, that really sucked. You stink, and then he goes to he goes to lunch with his ex wife, who is just like uh, who's leasing their house that they agreed to sell, and she's already eaten. <laughs> she says something, like, "Oh, I couldn't wait." And he's like, "Oh, but I was on time." Uh, the, all of the waiters are giving him shit, including like a guy who we don't even see, who's like from off screen talking to him. Uh, he's just constantly put upon. Well, they make and him then, pay the uh, bill too. She makes him pay the bill. Uh, he's been getting cucked by his doctor. Um, yeah, it's it's truly nuts. And uh, then uh, all of a sudden he starts to uh, spark uh, in the restaurant after his wife makes him pay, uh, pay this bill. He suddenly uh, briefly spontaneously combusts. Uh, and it's it's that's I, I think that's when the you know, that's when the performance really kicks into high gear because his like pained yelps are such are, are oh, so yeah. great. He's like he's a great screamer uh, up there with the best uh, a scream king, uh, if you will. Uh, and even when he walks into the bathroom, there's that shot where it looks like a guy is about to set him on fire. Like yes. he's often like within the frame, uh, portrayed in such a way in which people are sort of uh, I don't know, seemingly like he's antagonistic like in proximity to fire. <laughs> or yeah. Also, every set in this movie is oh, yeah. amazing. Yes, 
uh, it's every dollar is on screen. No set is believable as like what a place would really look like. Uh, no. His girlfriend, who looks to me exactly like Hillary Clinton, it looks and dresses a lot like <laughs> yeah, Hillary Clinton yeah. did in this That's era. Like, I don't know the the famous video of of her and Bill that Adam Curtis always uses. I swear to God, she's wearing something with like the same shoulder pads and has uh, like a very <laughs> similar face. Anyway, uh, she is in this apartment where everything is neon. Uh, I don't beautiful. know what you call this aesthetic, but. Uh, it, it, he should have known she was in on it because there, there's no, no name for that aesthetic, Bennett, because no one has ever had that. No one, aesthetic. No one has it's ever had never it. existed uh, outside of this one room. I think Ignati Vishnevetsky said something like, it, "It wouldn't be believable in like a Nicholas Winding Refn movie. You would be like, no, no, no one looks like this." <laughs> but uh, people uh, basically like it's it's his birthday, right? I, I guess I don't know what is he turning like 30, uh, 40 maybe. And uh, there's a there's a nuclear plant uh, that's opening. Uh, it's just gotten its reactor, and they also refer to that as its birthday. Like all of these yeah. these forces seem to be lining up, and all sorts of people around town are spontaneously combusting. And um, I love this this radio host they call into, who seems to be both a medium and just an expert in all things spooky and scary, because he's the one who introduces us in uh, the present day storyline to the concept of spontaneous combustion, uh, like, and, and more importantly, introduces Dorif to, to the concept. I don't know, this, this much like Life Force um, really, really like starts becoming several movies in one very quickly. Yeah. A- a- partially because we spend, I think, almost like 15, 20 minutes with Dorif's parents in the past. Um, yeah. This movie uses a newsreel to supply exposition, which is the best way ever to supply exposition. I mean, this is this is a uh, it's his Citizen Kane. I gave this five stars on Letterboxd fully unironically. I think this is like one of my 50 favorite movies at this point. It is a beautifully assembled film, right? There's like a lot that happens. Uh, but it, I, you sort of said it earlier. It's it is it's constantly we sort of are entered into a world. I, I mentioned earlier that I feel like one of the Toby Hooper's gifts is he he always sort of keeps you a half step off from, from what's happening. You're like always he's it's like he's constantly pulling the rug that you're walking on. Um, and and this movie it, it is it's like you're constantly you're like are these things happening to Brad Dourif or, or is he just does it just seem like everyone's terrible? Does it just seem like the world is out to get him? But but then it is like oh it's your birthday it's the reactor's birthday it's it's it constantly gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Until the end, and then it literally explodes. Yeah, and I mean, even from the first shots, like, he starts this movie with a false start, because they're like, all right, let's do the countdown mm-hmm. for the bomb, and it doesn't drop. And then Nothing he happens. shows the bomb, like, shaking. <laughs> it's just like, it's such a great way to start this. <laughs> oh, that whole sequence is so good. The shot of the, the sun sort of coming over the hill, where they're all watching it from the bunker. Did you think that was a mushroom cloud the first time? I did. Yes, I guess he obviously means yeah. for it to suggest it. It's so, so good. Yeah. Um, I... It's that the movie has a lot of, uh, and I know Lynchian is such a such a horrible adjective to employ, but I think this is the rare film that actually sort of earns the Lynchian comparisons because I do think so. I mean, I, Craig, I know from your letterbox ratings that you weren't a fan of of Twin Peaks: The Return, but one of the Twin Peaks: The Return's sort of like central themes episode is like the eight. idea that like the a, a, episode eight is yeah, episode all about eight. that's the, a five star episode. <laughs> it's yeah, all about the the dropping of the atomic bomb, sort of like setting all these cosmic forces into motion and like leading to the creation of Bob. And like I don't know, this feels like of a piece with that. And in addition to like the 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 atomic bomb sort of having poisoned everything, there's a sense that like electricity in this is even evil. Yeah. Because like not only can not only can uh, Dorif spontaneously combust, but he can like do it through the phone. And like occasionally, yeah, he can force uh, other people to do it. Yeah. Yeah, and occasionally he can like. Uh, Occasionally, he can even control electricity, including like during the climax when all the like lights are flickering on and off. And I, I don't know. I feel like the neon stuff is really supposed to be like drawing our attention to all of this like technology that this like power runs through. 
Well, there's also, Ben, at the beginning, everyone has either pro or anti-nuclear power bans on their arms, right? We're, yeah, like, yeah, introduced yeah. to the idea of nuclear power being either good or evil, but definitely... Yeah, hot like, button, certainly. Potent. Yeah, yeah exactly. But yeah, no, I, I and then obviously the fifties fetishism is, is is in keeping with uh with Lynch's whole of Yeah, I don't know. I, I not to make this about Twin Peaks the Return, but I mean I, I come on. I uh, I don't know. I, I, I wouldn't be shocked I wouldn't be shocked to learn that David Lynch has seen spontaneous combustion. Yeah. I would be a little surprised to hear that he didn't. <laughs> I, I, I really uh, another uh thing uh, Hooper does really well in both films is his use of shadow and I think it's especially interesting here um, in the first scene in the hospital when, when David's born we get a couple of really really like vivid clear silhouettes the whole hospital room seems it seems like really really sunny outside or something and I, it feels like it has to be a choice all the shadows we see and it yeah. reminded me of the, the silhouettes Absolutely. that were apparently created uh, when the bomb was dropped which I only oh. learned about from Watchmen but I don't know that, it has to be a choice that we get these <laughs> The, the, the silhouettes uh, so clearly there's David right when he's born yeah. there's uh, his mother when she's singing and then there's his father uh, when he when he uh, gives him the, the merry-go-round and I also love just the yeah. ominous line of ah, it's so great what they're doing with plastic uh, <laughs> yeah. so so yeah. good <laughs> yeah weirdly dark there's also the 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 main bad guy I don't remember his name the like older guy who Lou. who who conspired to create uh, Brad Dourif um is for the first six times we see him completely concealed in shadow, it feels like it's doing one of those things where it's going to be uh, either either it's going to be one scene in and it's a famous actor or like it's going to be really important later that we didn't know what his face looked like. But it's neither of those things. He just is shown entirely in shadow for the first I don't, 45 minutes of the movie. And then and then eventually Brad Dourif gets in a limousine and he's just sitting there and we see his face. And I don't I don't 100 percent understand how that reveal uh got there or panned out that way but it is super fascinating the way that he sort of shows him in, in completely enshrouded in darkness in a very sort of conspicuous way for a good portion of the film i am um, i i think too that the really quick escalation of the plot is in keeping with just the degradation of Doris both mind and body like one of the oh, key yeah. things about the, the the spontaneous combustion is that like he doesn't heal it's like the it's 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 like um it's the it's it's the opposite of like Wolverine in the claws. Like he he is just constantly having to like bandage himself up. He just gets than like worse and worse. And re-injuring. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, like and it and it happens like pretty quickly. Like he he yeah. combusts at the restaurant and then I think within ten minutes he's like burning John Landis to death <laughs> on the phone. Yeah. which is an incredible sequence. <laughs> so, so good. And not just because it's hilarious to see one of Hollywood's like eminent manslaughterers and blowhards get like yeah. burned. <laughs> but yeah. it's, uh, it's such a wild sequence. Uh, they, they, they call into the aforementioned uh, radio host and he senses, it seems like he is actually a medium because he seems to yeah. sense things about David and then like a scientist who is also on Project Samson calls in Dorif, uh like accidentally hangs up because his birthmark starts to grow. I'll say one area where the film's like special <laughs> effects uh, lose me is initially the birthmark, birthmark? is like very it, the, the birthmark is initially <laughs> raised. It looks like a weird like nipple sort of a thing, and then as it's growing throughout the film, it's very clearly painted on. <laughs> There's no texture to it or anything. <laughs> Um, but, uh, he, he calls back in and like Landis won't put him through Landis is, I guess, like a producer or something. <laughs> and he starts shooting 
fire through the phone that comes out of like Landis's mouth, starts coming yeah. out of like his legs and arms, and Landis gets totally on fire. And here's where like the pungency and like the goopiness of uh, Hooper's filmmaking is at its best. Landis, when he's on fire, like slams against the wall of the recording booth and leaves behind this like <laughs> smear. Oh, it's revolting. <laughs> Oh, it's so good, and the the degradation on Dorif is so is so great too. For what couldn't have been like a very large makeup budget, no, uh, really great. Oh, and during that scene, he starts to shoot out like black goop. I feel like the oh, special yeah. effects are very in keeping with the sort of handmade quality of like the special effects you'd see in like a Lynch film, e- even now, or in something like Twin Peaks: The Return. Sorry, to, I, I think this is Hooper's most Lynchian film. <laughs> I think my favorite part of the whole movie is when the fire just starts shooting out of the center of his arm and they're like uh-huh. trying to pour water on it. And he's like, no, it makes it worse. It keeps making it worse. Yeah. yeah. And, and there's, there's the seed because sown for that too. His, right? uh, his mean, Oh, I guess it is supposed to be electrical. Maybe. Yeah. His mean doctor gets uh, burned and we find out that he like burned to death in like a shower with it running. Oh yeah. So, like, his, his doctor's another guy. that's a complete dick to him. He's like, uh, I think yeah. I'm sick. And he's like, everybody yeah, always trying to get out sick. This is I'm going back to this idea that I feel like Toby Hooper is always sort of like uh, keeping you keeping you confused. The when we're introduced to Brad Dourif as an adult, it is the first thing we see of him is when he's auditioning for that play. And so I briefly was like, "Am I to believe he's a high schooler?" Be- yeah. with, because my girlfriend you know, the same thing. She's like, "Why movies is he sometimes cast thirty five year old as as high schoolers?" You know what I mean? So I was like, "Is this is this is he a high schooler now?" And then. It took me four minutes to figure out that he was a teacher. Uh, it's I don't know. It's everything. Everything is like a little bit confusing. Yeah, they have like the hanging out in the hallway after school moment. It's like, wait, are, yeah. are they teachers uh-huh. or students? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who are these people? What's yeah. happening? Why are there other students? Why do they feel f- so free to be so mean to this man unless he's also a student? <laughs> Imagine like saying that to your high school teacher. Like, wow, you really yeah. suck. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's so funny. I, I think, besides maybe the Landis thing, I think my favorite sequence in the film, uh, and among my favorite in, in Hooper's filmography is that great scene when he's, like, looking into the fireplace, when he sort of, like, sees into his past uh, after the, the spontaneous combustion has started to happen. Hooper is, like, a far better technician, I think, that people give him credit for, too. Or at least, like, a master of, uh, I don't know, just the, the master of the montage. It's this really... sure like emotionally kind of wrenching sequence of him seeing like the family home movies and uh, it's this like flickering editing that kind of makes it look like film going through a projector uh, with the kind of cheesy flame effects that we've seen through the opening credits. So once again, it's like Hooper combining, I don't know, seemingly such competing sensibilities into something yeah. I think both kind of goofy and really beautiful. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely the most moving sequence I could think of in a Hooper film. Yeah. I mean, nothing Nothing else immediately springs to mind. Yeah, moving isn't usually what he's going it's, for. Yeah, it's not really what he's known for. <laughs> so one quote from Toby Hooper that I really loved, uh, he did an interview with Mick Garris on his YouTube show, and he asked him about Texas Chainsaw Massacre and why it's such a powerfully emotional like horror to it. And he, Hooper's response was, the best illustration of insanity is to show normality in an insane situation. Like, that is such a great quote about horror. So how do you, feel, especially Brad Dorf, like how does that fit into this movie? That's interesting. I, I think some of it is like part and parcel with the kind of conspiracy going on around him is that for a long time, everyone has to pretend like nothing's going on. His doctors have to keep saying stuff like, oh, have you been taking your migraine medication and stuff like yeah. that? I think that's, 
that's the enforcement of, of normality under things. I feel like that comes across more strongly in life force where we have so many people talking about such patently ludicrous things in a, in such a matter of fact way. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's something you see through so many of, of Hooper's films. He's got so many um, famous like dinner scenes. He's got so many famous scenes of like the domestic space kind of uh, perverted like that. But yeah, I think in, in the case of Spontaneous Combustion and Dorif, I think it's more represented in how other people approach him. He seems a little off, a little unhinged from the beginning. Yeah, that's why I thought this was an interesting quote for this movie, because he almost seems to be the part that is not sane, because you know everyone else is just like, well, yeah, you should be taking your pills, but he's being forced into this kind of insane situation. Well, yeah, it's, it's in most... Toby Hooper movies. I might be wrong on this, but in most of them, the main person we're following, and I guess this isn't true with something like Texas Chainsaw, because we're technically following the like woman who ended up there. Uh, but the the person who the audience is is sort of following the most is is like an aggressor, is a person who's like sort of in control in in a space where things or like is is trying to maintain control in a space where where things are spiraling out of control right uh but in this movie it's it's sort of flipped on its head a little bit it's it's brad Dourif is a victim from moment one in this film right he's and he doesn't know how i think that's the other thing is that usually in i think in toby Hooper movies and most of the ones that i can think of the what is happening is clear to everybody, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there might be moments where they're like, oh no, this man wants to eat me. I just figured that out, right? But but for broadly, everyone's like, I I have entered this carnival, I'm staying inside this fun house, and I and I see what's happening in it, and I am and 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 now I'm dealing with that, right? But this movie I, I want to say a big chunk of it, but it, it it honestly does happen pretty quickly once it starts happening. It, Brad Dourif is like, I think I'm living a normal life, and then everything crumbles around him to be like, I my whole it's it's almost like Truman Show style, right? Where he's like, oh, literally everything I've ever known has been put here, but he doesn't find out as quickly as he doesn't just sail into the into the sky, right? He he like. He sort of finds out piece by piece. He's like, "Oh, everything is against me. My doctor's against me. Oh, even my girlfriend is against me." It's it's it falls out in chunks. And it's like if finding out about the Truman Show resulted in all of the like actors in the Truman Show then like pulling out guns and knives. Yeah, then like, trying to murder you. <laughs> as soon as as soon as Duraf has like figured it out, and as soon as he's gone from being like scared to being angry, he's in confrontations with literally everyone. That kindly old yeah. security guard pulls a gun on him. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he's like, I, I've known you for so long. They're like clearly friendly with each other. And he's like, I'm going to have to murder you. <laughs> so one other quote I really like from that same interview is Toby Hooper said that film's effect is similar to music. And he said he feels he's doing a good job if his films feel like music. I don't know how to unpack that myself. So I'm throwing that one to you too. <laughs> <laughs> I think there is a lot. I, I mentioned earlier that I think one of his big strengths is rhythm, right? Yeah. I think he is very rhythmic. And and Bennett, you mentioned that one of the things that consistently is very good in his films is is the sense of montage, right? Which is which is the thing that that sort of the the most immediate thing that film and music have 
in common that other arts don't is time, right? I talk about this all the time in, in my classes, but the, it, the we're, they're sort of the only two arts. I don't really include theater because it's interactive in a way that neither of these is, but they're the only two arts that sort of ex- control the audience's experience through time, right? If you have a painting on the wall, people go look at it. They spend as much time as they want looking at it. They noodle over it, whatever parts they want, or they like blow past it, right? It's their choice. But with a movie or with music, you're you're in control of the audience's experience temporally um and and i think a lot of films treat that as sort of a happenstantial right they're like oh we're gonna get through this quickly or we're gonna get through this uh, slowly um but but they don't really put a heavy emphasis on like the beat by beat control of that time and toby hooper absolutely does in all of his films he's very concerned with with sort of the 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 rhythmic and and t- tempo based elements of of everything that's happening which I think he's often using uh, to to sort of throw you off in in ways that a lot of filmmakers don't. Um, that that's the way that I sort of would unpack that. I'm sure there might be other things that that means to him, right? There's also sort of ideas of like motif and of uh, uh, competing threads, right? One of the things you get in in music is is sort of like melodies and harmonies, and like counter melodies and stuff. And he is probably doing something with that, although I don't know. I, and and. As we've sort of mentioned, a lot of these films come off as structured uh, symphonically, right? Like there's a series of movements rather than uh, just just it's not like a, like a rock song that starts and ends. It's like a, a piece that has like five movements that then tie into each other somehow, right? That at least Life Force is definitely that. Yeah, or like tracks on an album, I guess is yeah maybe how I would sure. think about it. If 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 you have the uh, yeah the life force, sure. Album if you, sure, if you want to go lowbrow with it, <laughs> sorry, I, I know nothing about music. I'm talking so about yeah, Mahler <laughs> over here. <laughs> I know absolutely nothing about music or, or music theory or anything. And I, as unimpeachably excellent as my taste in movies is, my uh, my my taste in music is just as dog shit. So I really like I have no uh, I have no insight into like any any aspect of the world of music. I mean, I was gonna say for me that just as someone who knows nothing about music and often has to appreciate it on just sort of like an instinctive uh level i don't know hooper's films even if you aren't like trying to like pick them apart and understand why they work because oftentimes i think that gesture would be pretty unsatisfying sure uh, or uh, i i think you can still kind of like feel them on that uh in, in, that instinct you know gut level that uh i do as someone who doesn't understand music and only listens to it you know uh, as as you know emotion that's fair. Yeah, a lot of like what what feels good about in particular like rock music, right? Things that are a live band or playing or not necessarily live, but a band playing together rather than like techno is that sort of not not interactivity with the audience obviously, but interact- interactivity with each other, right? There's there's that element of like people coming together, creating a thing that's obviously planned out but like sort of is is evolving in the moment and is being created live in studio, right? There's like, uh, they're working together to make a thing and and interacting and playing off of each other, um, which which these his movies feel sort of alive in a similar way to that, right? Like I would, I would compare Toby Hooper movies to loud rock, you know, if if I was gonna pick a genre of music that that they feel like in my heart, I would say it's probably yeah, like uh, you know, like uh. What's uh, <laughs> I can't think of the name of a single band right now. I the all I can think of is Ministry, but that's not what I want. Um, uh, Testament is what I'm trying to think of. Uh, 
it's it's like a it feels like sort of like like noodly metal to me his his movies there's like a there's like an aliveness and a joy like if you watch a david fincher movie it sounds like uh it's it's like sedate nine inch nails right it's like it's like very it's programmed it's it's hitting beats that feel like they were they could have been made by a robot um it's very uh-huh. like quantized um but toby hooper every it, it, it constantly feels like it could go off the rails <laughs> Yeah, right, right, in the best way. Yeah, no, I mean, and Fincher, I mean, he's the go-to example for that sort yeah. of, like, soulless, of programmatic course. movie for a yeah, reason. Yeah. He's he's the, yeah. like, the antithesis yeah, yeah, yeah. Of, of Hooper to me. So, after talking about, you know, briefly Toby Hooper's career as a whole, I think so many people get caught up on, like, yeah, he did Texas Chainsaw and Poltergeist, but they kind of ignore everything else. How do you recommend, for people who might not be completely open to some of his weirder stuff, how do you recommend they approach these films? I, just check all of your your expectations about what a good movie is supposed to look and feel like at the door, what a horror movie is supposed to look and feel like at the door. You got to get kind of out of those those isms and be ready to be kind of shaken out of your comfort zone. You know, I always try to encourage anyone who's watching anything that's sort of outside of their normal wheelhouse or really anyone who's watching any movie to just sort of go in and and let the movie tell you how to watch it, right? Because most movies communicate in similar ways. So it's easy to be like, I know how this movie's going to talk to me. But some movies don't. Some movies are taking a different path into your brain. And if you're going in saying, I know how I'm going to watch this movie, then you're never going to have a good time watching a movie that's taking an alternate pathway. If you go into the movie and you're saying, I, I'm going to let this movie tell me how to watch it, uh, then I think any Toby Hooper movie is going to be a joyful experience to you. That they're all, they're all meandering around, taking a slightly different path than you may be used to if you mostly watch traditionally made films. Uh, but they're all doing what they're doing with a high degree of excellence. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a really great way to put it. I would just say, yeah, don't remove any and all like preconceived notions, and don't let yourself believe that like your at all like smarter or better than the film yeah. or that any critic who has contributed to its low metacritic score is at all smarter or better than the film and yeah, yeah. let it let it tell you how to watch it because it's I think it's not doing it wrong do. whatever you think it's doing wrong it's not you're just exactly. receiving it incorrectly i mean i just think i think that's the right way to watch films in general is just yeah, to absolutely. acknowledge that the film the film is better than you <laughs> it's yeah. smarter than you <laughs> humble yourself to the cinematic experience man exactly yes. It's doing what it's supposed to do. All right. So I think we're at that time. Let's put these films head to head. Life Force versus Spontaneous Combustion. Which one are you picking? I mean, I'm I'm gonna... I feel like Bennett has said a lot of things that have endeared me even more to spontaneous combustion than I than I already was, but I but I'm sticking with Life Force as the it's it's who I brung to the dance and it's who I'm gonna it's who I'm gonna leave the dance with. I uh, I'm gonna have to stick with spontaneous combustion uh, as well. I mean, I, I I really really like Life Force. It's jumped up my my Hooper ranking significantly. Um, but I think it has some of the same problems that a movie it's superficially similar to 2001 has in that like it's tough <laughs> to latch on to one of its characters. It's got a real like Pierre Delia problem with all of its like leading men. You have Stewart eventually, but he comes in a little late. Yeah. And I, I, I don't know. I think spontaneous combustion really benefits from having uh, Brad Dourif at its center. And I think um, what I go for, what I go to Hooper for in general, is like the goopiness and the griminess. And while there's some of that to spare in uh, Life Force, just the 
like yellow like pus and like the shooting like black blood coming out of his arm and spontaneous combustion is just such ooh, just such wonderful grotesquery and it's like exactly what you want from the guy who directed texas chainsaw massacre for my it is a more it's a more raw pure hooper i think if if someone who was listening to this was like i've never seen a hooper movie other than texas chainsaw they should definitely go the the spontaneous combustion route yeah i think i probably would go with life force because i yeah i rewatched both of them recently and life force took a much bigger jump because the first time i saw life force is like this is really good then the second time was like what didn't i see the first time i loved it to death spontaneous combustion is a ton of fun like i have nothing bad to say about it in the slightest but life force is just that that's the real deal to me really though if someone's looking for an entry point just pick any movie you know even if you pick like a weird like we said like a tertiary like toolbox murders and you want to jump in there you'll you'll do well with it mm-hmm. you're not gonna they're be all, sad yeah even if you don't agree that they're good i think you'll agree that they're singular um yeah and that they yeah, give yeah. You, like a lot to at least look at all right so do you guys have any final thoughts about either of these films or toby hooper as a whole uh i mean i'll just say that uh he's a filmmaker who has been kind of perpetually uh, sold short. Uh, you know, if you know one thing about Toby Hooper, besides the fact that he directed the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it's probably that people don't think he directed Poltergeist. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I I think it's promising that people on like film Twitter and Letterboxd uh, really, really seem to go to bat for him. And I hope that only continues uh, in the, uh, in the coming years. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that he, I think he's considered like one of the big horror dudes, but also just for basically one movie. Um, but but I think he I think he deserves a little bit more attention than than that. He is he is as Bennett said three hours ago when we started. It's even if his movies aren't cohering, even if they aren't doing a thing that that is broadly, they're not creating a whole that is to your liking. They're a hundred percent doing a thousand little things that are that are delightful. Um, they're they're just like gardens of miniature delights all the way across every single one of them. So I think there's there's no Toby Hooper that isn't worth. Uh, consuming well i think that wraps it up perfectly jim thank you so much for joining us this has been a blast having you on yeah thank you bennett as always good seeing you again thanks for joining us always happy to be here and uh jim good to uh talk to you sort of at length yeah same first time same (laughs) we have a lot more october horror coming your way we'll get through this we'll get through it somehow (laughs) um but yeah we are looking at the american greats for this year for on split picks so i think up next is john carpenter it's gonna be a good time uh, well, thank you for listening i'm craig wright this is split picks we'll be back soon Uh, I, they're gonna throw me in the uh, in the brig in this uh, in the split tooth compound.